0: Hello everyone and welcome to Scream Scene, the horror movie podcast where we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order and then we rank them from best to worst. My name's Ben
1: and I'm Sarah.
0: Thank you for joining us today. How are you doing Sarah?
1: Good, getting stuff done around the house. I'm not looking forward to this movie, though.
0: (laughs) Yep, that's fair.
1: And just a heads up to our listeners that our basement suite is being shown by our landlord, so you might hear some background talking and background sounds. What you gonna do? One of the things I was doing was, you know, sweeping the weekly cleaning Mm -hmm. and found a spider... Had to kill the spider. Mm -hmm. Did not enjoy that. I will not enjoy this movie.
0: Yeah, if you don't already know, dear listeners, Sarah is a big arachnophobe. Major, major arachnophobia in Sarah.
1: Yeah, I'm I'm handling it. (laughs) You know, you manage the symptoms.
0: To the best of my knowledge, the spiders in this movie are giant spiders portrayed by big wire-operated puppets, like big marionette spiders, so they might cross the realm into being so goofy and bad-looking that they don't bother you.
1: Okay, well, uh, I think we've talked around the creature in this movie.
0: Right. What is this movie? Okay, well, what is this movie is a very good question. (laughs) (laughs) So today on Scream Scene, we are watching Mesa of Lost Women, from 1953, although that was not the film's first title, or its second title.
1: Oh, its last title?
0: No, that is the film's last title, yeah. The story of the making of this movie might just be the most interesting thing about it. Honestly, it reminds me a lot of The Room. Not that the movie reminds me a lot of The Room, but the story around how it was made.
1: okay. Uh so there's a guy named Tommy Wiseau with bad hair.
0: Um his name isn't Tommy Wiseau, but he's a very similar kind of person.
1: And he has bad hair?
0: I don't know what he looks like. Okay. I couldn't find a single photograph of him. Ooh, but um mystery. No, yeah, exactly. Uh sort of like how Tommy Wiseau emerged out of nowhere to produce The Room with really no one knowing, like, what his real name is, where he's from originally, how old he is, because everything he says about himself is a lie.
1: Emerged from the womb, as he is <laughs> in adulthood. Uh,
0: and then, you know, made this, like, super cheap... Awful Awful movie. movie.
1: I can't even watch it for, like, hate watching. I hate it.
0: Very similar to how this movie was made. The difference is that... The guy who made this movie then sort of vanished as mysteriously as he came, whereas Tommy Wiseau, because he made his movie in the era of, like, you know, so bad it's good, ironic, watching of things and the internet and memeing and everything, got to, like, spin a career out of being, like, a weirdo who doesn't know what he's doing. Anyways, that said, to actually talk about this movie, the story of this movie begins with the mysterious Herbert Tevos arrived in Hollywood from out of nowhere in 1950 and, uh, started writing scripts in an attempt to get a film off the ground. Okay. Uh, Just wanted to make a movie of his screenwriting style. He took a lot of pride in his belief in lean movies with no subplots or deviations from the central idea. Just stick to what your story's about. Nothing else should be in the story. Okay. So he wrote very, like, 45-page screenplays, basically. Um, He didn't have a lot of success with selling them or getting anyone interested in any of them. uh, Until finally, he managed to sell a script that was called either Tarantula or Lost Women of ZARPA uh, (laughs) to a company called Pergor Productions, I saw varied sources on what the original title of this movie was.
1: Question: mm. Was it just Tarantula, or was it Tarantula with an exclamation no, point? No, just
0: Tarantula is what I have here.
1: Okay.
0: Um, as for Zarpa, that's in reference to the Zarpa Mesa, uh, which I believe is in New Mexico.
1: What's a mesa?
0: A mesa is like a um, like a large elevated plateau. So, you know those mountains where, like, it goes up a bit, and then it's, like, big and long and flat, and then goes back down? Okay. That's a mesa.
1: Oh, like in the, that one valley that everyone shot westerns in. Yeah,
0: yeah. Um, Monument Valley.
1: Monument Valley.
0: Yeah, so uh, a mesa's sort of like a mountain that's had the top cut off of it, and it's just flat. It's a raised plateau. Okay. So, part of how TiVos got this movie on the road with Pergore Productions is he claims to have been a major director back in Germany in the day. Uh, specifically, he claimed to have directed Marlena Dietrich in The Blue Angel, um, which would be pretty surprising news to Joseph von Sternberg. Mm-hmm. Um, he convinced Pergor to let him direct his script and even managed to get cinematographer Carl Struss to come out and work on it. Now, Carl Struss, you may remember as the inventor of the soft-focus lens. Um, He was the cinematographer of the original Ben-Hur in 1925, the Oscar-winning Sunrise in 1927, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde in 1931, Island of Lost Souls in 1932, The Great Dictator in 1940, Journey into Fear in
1: 1943, etc., etc. How? How is is he here?
0: Yeah, uh, I don't know how he got onto this movie, and how much of, like, it was related to TiVo's um, apparent, like... Bullshitting? Bullshitting, yeah. Um, but Stress's career had been on a downswing since he left Paramount Pictures in 1945. He'd been working as an independent freelancer, and uh, that had left him in the position of shooting Tarzan movies and, like, B sci-fi movies like Rocketship XM. Those would have been still, like... A little higher budget than this, though. This is like an indie movie. This is like a Z movie, you know? <laughs> um, later the same year that he shot for Tevos, he would shoot the film Limelight for Charlie Chaplin, which would be like a big comeback for him into, like, the world of prestige movie making. Mm-hmm. Not that... I mean, Limelight was a troubled production that... Really didn't work out for Chaplin as a comeback in the U.S. the way he wanted it to. But that's a whole nother story.
1: And not a story for this podcast. Yeah,
0: exactly. Um, Tivos, meanwhile, acted like he was Erich von Stroheim. And <laughs> that was kind of the persona he adopted. Oh, ordering no. people around with just, like, utter conviction. Like, he really did portray this idea that, like, oh, yeah, I'm a big-name German film director. And you should listen to me because of that. Like, he just, total, like, conviction in that non-truth. Wow. He gathered together a cast largely consisting of unknowns and amateurs. Uh, His lead actor, Robert Knapp, would go on to a long career on television, but this was one of his earliest film acting roles. Another performer in the cast, George Barros, had been performing in uncredited roles since 1934. The kind of guy who would play, like, policeman number two and like hench guy number three hench
1: guy yeah not even a man that's right just a guy
0: um after shooting this movie george barros would establish a specialty as a gorilla suit actor In several movies over the course of the 50s and 60s, none more infamous than his role as Roman in 1953's Robot Monster, where he plays a robot alien invader who looks like a gorilla wearing a diving suit helmet.
1: Oh, boy.
0: Tivo's big discovery in the cast was actress Jeanette Quinn, uh, who we've actually seen before. In Neanderthal Man, she played the deaf mute maid who was experimented oh, on. Yeah, uh, she shot that movie after she shot this movie, and Tivos kind of like decided that she was going to be this like big exotic dancer and kind of wanted to be like her Svengali and gave her the stage name Tandra Nova. Uh, she decided to alter that to Tandra Quinn, so she's Tandra Quinn okay. in the credits for this movie. Uh, like in Neanderthal Man, her role is silent here.
1: Oh, jeez Louise. Tivos
0: was reportedly difficult to work with, and the cast and producers did not like him.
1: Yeah, he sounds like a real piece of work.
0: But the film was completed and issued a production code seal in October of 1951. Oh, How-
1: 51, but we're in 1953.
0: Yes! So the producers uh, found that they could not find anyone willing to distribute the movie. <laughs> And the finished film was deemed unreleasable.
1: Oh, boy.
0: Tevos, for his part, disappeared as mysteriously as he came, <laughs> never making another movie again.
1: Disappearing into the fog like Jake Gyllenhaal. Yeah. Uh,
0: so, to recoup their losses, Pergore sold the film to fellow indie movie company, Howco who were the producers of many cheap B-movies and exploitation films at the time. Hauko then assigned Ron Ormond to direct new footage and edit the movie into something workable. Okay. So Ron Ormond was born Vittorio De Nevo in August of 1910, and he started out in vaudeville, taking his name from his mentor, Ormond McGill, who was a magician. Ron Ormond, uh, married vaudeville singer and dancer June Carr, and they toured with each other in a show where Ormond was the MC and lead magician. Ormond went into film when he founded the production company Western Adventure Productions with then popular Western star Lash LaRue, uh, when the rise of television kind of made producing B-movie Westerns less profitable, um, Ormond abandoned Western adventures and moved into other exploitation genres. Um, You know, women in prison movies, uh, teen, juvenile delinquent movies. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) It was during this period he became involved in Howco and the newly retitled Mesa of Lost Women. Meanwhile... Uh, Ormond and his magician mentor wrote several books in this period about meditation and hypnosis and magic and psychic powers, all with kind of like an Orientalist theme. Oh, You know, no. like mysteries of the Far Orient kind of yeah. stuff. Yeah. In the 1960s, Ormond would become involved with producing roller derby for television during the original sort of period of roller derby's popularity. Oh,
1: where there was like no rules. Mm. It was basically like wrestling on roller skates yeah
0: it was it was the same deal as like pro wrestling you know in the same way that they produced it for television yeah right uh after surviving a plane crash in the 1970s Ooh. ormond converted to christianity yeah imagine and started making what are called christian gore exploitation films ormond made movies that like would have themes about like Hell and like the second coming and like you know what happens to you if you're like a real bad person.
1: Oh, like the like haunted houses, right? Yeah, that, yeah. Like Christian congregations might do that are like, here's what hell is like. Yeah,
0: or the like movie version of Chick Tracks. He also included themes about, like, the dangers of communism to the safety of the United States. And these were all transportation vehicles for, like, a lot of, like, gore and violence and, like, horror stuff. Yeah. Within the context of, like, oh, here's how the commies are going to torture you, or here's what Satan will do to you, or whatever, right?
1: Yeah.
0: Ormond passed away in 1981. For Mesa of Lost Women, Ormond created a new story to sort of envelop... And expand Tevos' story. And he got the original cast back together for extensive reshoots in 1952.
1: I'm surprised they weren't busy on other projects. (laughs)
0: Um, He also hired new actors for the new scenes as well. Including the addition of a whole new main villain for the film. Dr. Aranya. Played by Jackie Coogan. Uh, Jackie Coogan was born in 1914 and had his start as a child performer in vaudeville. He was discovered by Charlie Chaplin, who cast him in the title role for his tramp film, The Kid, in 1921. This catapulted Coogan to major stardom, and the next year he played the title role in Oliver Twist. He was the first major child star in Hollywood. He was heavily merchandised, very popular, estimated to have earned about $4 million over the course of the 1920s.
1: And then, like all child actors, he...
0: (laughs) So, uh, at age 20, in 1935, Coogan was the sole survivor of a car crash that killed his father, his best friend, and two others. Holy shit. Later that year, he turned 21 and was expected to gain control of his assets, which had been managed by his parents. He discovered instead that his fortune had been spent by his mother and the family's financial advisor with whom his mother had been having an affair on fur coats, diamonds, expensive cars, etc. His mother and the advisor then married in 1936, and his mother stated that they had never promised Jackie anything, and after all, he was just playing in front of the camera, not actually, like, working or anything. So it's not like he earned any of this money. Like, really, they deserved it for, like, having to put up with, like... Managing him through, like, being this child actor or whatever.
1: That's awful.
0: Yep. Uh, During this period, Coogan married the extremely popular model, actress, singer, dancer Betty Grable in 1937. And in 1938, he sued his mother and stepfather for his money. He won the case, uh, but there was only $250,000 of his earnings remaining for him to get. Uh, And after covering his legal expenses, he only received $126,000, about 3% of what he had earned when he was a child star.
1: Yeah. I mean, I guess it's better than nothing, but that's still really shitty.
0: Grable then divorced him in 1939, and he fell on hard times to the point where Charlie Chaplin was then loaning him money to, like, keep him solvent. The legal battle with his parents resulted in the passing of the Coogan Act in California in 1939, which requires 15% of a child performer's earnings to be set aside in a trust and regulates the child's schooling, work hours, and time off when they are a performer.
1: Well, that that's some good stuff.
0: Coogan then fought in the Second World War as a pilot for the air commandos. Uh, so he would fly behind enemy lines, and then these commandos would, like, parachute out of the plane and go take enemy bases and stuff. Yeah. Uh, and then he returned to acting after the war. Uh, that's kind of where we're finding him here, uh, in this Z movie. Uh,
1: <laughs> however,
0: he would act a lot on TV through the 1950s, building up an impressive television acting resume as an adult. His most famous adult role among his many performances is as uncle Fester on the original Adams family TV series from 1964 to 1966.
1: That's cool. Yeah, Uh,
0: Jackie Coogan passed away in 1984.
1: Question, Mm. you call this like a Z movie, Mm -hmm. first things first, we're Canadian, it's Uh Zed, but second thing, uh, does Poverty Row not really exist anymore? Not really. Um, It's
0: either like, kind of gone away, or gone into TV production, or sort of consolidated and become something a little bit separate. Uh, from what it used to be. What you have a lot of in the 1950s is like totally indie movie companies coming together, making a couple movies, selling them for distribution, and then vanishing. Um, You do have certain producers who will arise throughout the 50s to become like major indie film producers with their own little indie production companies. But then they're selling their movies to studios to be distributed. Oh, okay. As opposed to them existing as their own studios in their own right.
1: And this change is coming because of a mix of like the introduction of TV and the uh, studio system going away. Yeah, exactly. Or like the Monopoly system. Yeah. Yeah. Okay.
0: So the new footage for Mesa of Lost Women that would envelop the old footage was shot by Gilbert Warrington, who had his start as a cinematographer in the 1910s and shot Cat in the Canary in 1927, The Man Who Laughs in 1928, and Showboat in
1: 1929. Wow. It's really interesting to hear like some of these like big names, a lot of people in vaudeville. Yeah. Um, I don't know what this movie's going to be, and it's not going to be good, I'm sure.
0: Yeah. Um, The reason why someone like Gilbert Warrington is shooting this film is because by the 1950s, he's not shooting movies like Showboat anymore, yeah. you know? To tie the new story elements kind of together with the old footage, uh, narration by actor Lyle Talbot was recorded. Now,
1: Lyle Talbot.
0: Mm mm-hmm. hmm. Is was, that
1: a fake name?
0: Yes, he was. Because he's trying to
1: be like Larry Talbot. He
0: was born as Lyle Henderson in 1902, and he was a stage actor as Lyle Talbot. Uh, in the 1920s, before coming to Warner Brothers in 1931 in the early days of Talkies.
1: Okay, so his name, Lyle Talbot, existed before Larry Talbot with the Wolfman. Yes. Okay. Uh,
0: Lyle Talbot was like a very handsome young actor at the time, and Warners made him into like a matinee idol. He was very popular, he was considered a very likable guy, easy to work with. In 1933, he was a founding member of the Screen Actors Guild, And his work with union activism hurt his career, and Warner Brothers dropped him from his contract in 1934. He never really got starring roles again after that. Uh, Instead, he became a character actor for Poverty Row B-movies. Okay. He was the first live-action Commissioner Gordon in 1949's Batman and Robin serial, and he was the first live-action Lex Luthor in the 1950 Adam-Man vs. Superman serial. However, he is probably best remembered today for his appearances in the Ed Wood films Glen or Glenda, Jailbait, and Plan 9 from Outer Space.
1: Amazing.
0: The film's score by Hoyt Curtin was later reused wholesale for Ed Wood's Jailbait, uh, which was also a Howco production. Curtin is probably best remembered for composing the theme songs and incidental music for Hanna-Barbera cartoons like the Flintstones, the Jetsons, Johnny Quest, Super Friends, the Smurfs, etc. Etc. So Mesa of Lost Women was released on June 17th, 1953, uh, two days before Neanderthal Man. It is considered among the worst movies ever made. Jackie Coogan's performance was criticized as being beneath his talents. And the flamenco, guitar, and piano score was considered maddening and repetitive. Wonderful. It's a public domain picture today.
1: Really? So
0: it's on our YouTube list.
1: Huh. So we can subject
0: more people to this movie. And what of the mysterious Herbert Tevos? Who was he? Where did he come from? Where, Where did, did he, he go? Come? He was born Herbert von Schollenbach in 1896 in Germany. He had worked for the film manufacturer AGFA, and his closest involvement with the German film industry was that he had written letters to Karl Vollmüller, the writer of The Blue Angel. Oh. AGFA then sent him to the United States uh, to work as the head of their paper testing division uh, in the 1930s. Uh, there, he was teamed up with um, like technicians and researchers, and he told the researchers working with him in the paper testing division that he had been a movie cameraman that he had uh, gone on expeditions to the Amazon in his role as a movie cameraman that he had been friends with the Red Baron in uh, World War One that is the German flying fighter ace
1: yeah of Snoopy fame
0: right in 1942 he was detained by the FBI for interrogation as an enemy alien uh, while he was living in L.A. then, Uh, After his brief brush with Hollywood in the early 40s, he worked as a cameraman for the General Photo Sales Corporation and passed away in 1988.
1: Welp, this movie's on the Scream Scene playlist, which you can find at screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com, so you too can be subjected to this movie. You're going to hear a brief musical interlude, and when we come back, we will discuss The Mesa of Lost Women from 1953, directed by Herbert Tivos and Ron Ormond.
0: See you on the other side, everybody.
1: Welcome back to Scream Scene. We just finished watching Mesa of Lost Women from 1953, directed by Herbert Tivos and Ron Ormond. Um, How long was this movie?
0: Oh, um, 70 minutes. An hour and 10 minutes.
1: Yeah, that's an hour and 10 minutes I won't get back in my short life, Ben.
0: You spent it with me,
1: though. That was the only good part of it. No. (laughs) (laughs) What did you think?
0: Um, could have used more reshoots. I think what would make the most sense is if you give us the story of the movie, and then I can tell our listeners which parts were in the original
1: movie. Okay. So this movie is bonkers in the way it tells its story. Has The Twilight Zone come out yet? No. No? Okay. It's, uh... If you like voiceover innovation, narration, you should see this movie. The film opens with a couple of oil workers working in the Muerto desert, um, and they see two people, like, wandering the desert. Um, as the oil workers are like, oh, let's go pick these guys up in our jeep and help them out, see what's going on, we get some voiceover talking about puny human wanting to conquer the world, In an everlasting battle between humans versus hexapods and insects. Um, Which I will say, spiders are neither hexapods nor insects.
0: Correct. In fact, the thing that makes them not insects is that they are not hexapods.
1: Exactly. Mm -hmm. In any case, these two people are rescued uh, and taken to the nearby hospital of this, like, oil company. Yeah. Yeah. Uh so the man, his name is Grant, and we learn that the woman's name is Doreen. Uh he's like, No, we, we need to go back to Zarpa Mesa uh and finish burning it all down, otherwise they'll get out. And the doctor's like Okay, calm down. Everything's fine. They think he's um like over dehydrated and, and has sunstroke.
0: Which is probably still true anyway. Yes. They were wandering the Muerto Desert.
1: Which, by the way, means, like, death desert.
0: Yeah. Real place, though.
1: Real place. One of the oil workers uh, is Mexican. His name is Pepe. Real original guys. Mm -hmm. The camera starts to zoom in on Pepe uh, with the voiceover going like, But Pepe knew. Pepe believed this story. And he could think back to a year ago when the strange things began occurring.
0: Yeah, it's... It's really weird because Grant starts being like, okay, I'll tell you my story. It all began when, and then the camera turns away from him to Pepe so that the narrator can start (laughs) telling a story about some stuff that Pepe knows and is thinking about at this time. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, so remember, we go into pepe's flashback although he's not actually involved in any of the events that he's thinking about
1: no but he's remembering um how weird rumors about the zarpa mesa started around a year ago in this flashback we see a dr leland masterson arriving to the zarpa mesa to meet with a dr aranya now Masterson has read Aranya's research and is very intrigued by his theories around the pituitary gland because always it's with always the glands. with the glands.
0: Yeah. Until they find out what DNA is.
1: It's always going to be glands. Mm-hmm. Which is a little old-fashioned given that we're in the 1950s and now everything's supposed to be like about atomic energy and atomic bombs. Right,
0: right, radiation mutations and stuff like that. Yeah. yeah. Well, anyways. Also odd given that We're in the Muerto Desert, where the first Trinity test for the atomic bomb took place. So you'd think that there'd be something about nuclear radiation in here, but there isn't.
1: There is not. Now, Dr. Aranya is like, Ah, Masterson, I'm so glad you could accept my invitation. I'm very fascinated with your work as well, but you should know my work isn't just theories. And Masterson is like, what do you mean? And Aranya explains his work is taking the pituitary gland, which is like the gland that allows you to grow. It's the growth hormone or whatever. Growth gland, I guess. Sure. Takes that out of sexy ladies, puts it into spiders to make human-sized spiders. And then he takes that gland back out of the spider and puts it back into the sexy ladies so that the sexy ladies take on aspects of the spider. Like being able to grow back a limb or something like that. So they're kind of like spider women.
0: Yeah, it's it was really unclear to me the exact mechanism that they were trying to explain here, but like at some point when the human growth gland is in the spider and has now made it a giant spider, he says that he now, in that state, has telepathic control over the giant spiders for some reason. And then what I thought he was doing was then taking the brain... Of that spider and putting it back in the sexy lady. Because he said something about how, like, he took the control mechanism out of
1: the spider and put it into the humans. But I... Sure, but he goes on about how, like, these women have, like, all of the intellect of a human. But then, like, the strength and, like indestructibility of a spider.
0: Right. But, like, then they also can't talk, and he still can mind-control them. It's a little bit... Listen, it's all fake science anyway. They're
1: not going to be winning any Hugo Awards here. Yeah, yeah.
0: When he's tried to do this with men, they've all ended up as dwarfs.
1: Because of, like, the way that male insects and male spiders tend to be smaller than the female anyways. Right. Like, if you think of, like... Like the praying mantis eating the male.
0: Yeah, the Black Widow spider is another example. Um, He's trying to avoid thinking about spiders. I mean, listen, we are...
1: I will try to take what I can get, Ben. Sure. Listen, Ben.
0: (laughs) He gets a bunch of dwarves and sexy ladies he can mind control, who also cannot be killed. That's the end result. Yeah. And he's going to use them to take over the world.
1: (laughs) The main sexy lady... Is Tarantella, played by Tandra Quinn. She is kind of given as like the ideal result or specimen Mm -hmm. of these experiments. Now, Masterson is like, I can't be party to this. This is evil. You're evil. And it's like, you may think that, but maybe like say that behind his back once you get (laughs) out of his lair, out of the death desert. Right. My guy, Dr. Aranya doesn't take kindly to these words. So he's like, well, I can't let you leave alive. And they um, inject some kind of drug into Masterson, um, which like causes him to faint. We see that he wakes up and has vague recollections out of, from what's going on. And then he escapes somehow.
0: Yeah. He escapes in a spinning newspaper. Yes. Like he goes under and then he has like a weird dream about what's happened to him And then we get a spinning newspaper that's just like, scientist escapes desert of death. Masterson insane now and at an asylum. And it's like, well, okay, if you say so.
1: But we're not at the asylum for long because he escapes there. We do get a chance to meet his nurse,
0: George. Played by George Barrows. Very creative names in this movie.
1: Travelers Doreen and her fiancé, who you might remember from the beginning.
0: Yeah, what's her last name? Culverson?
1: Yeah, something like that. Uh Doreen and her fiance, Jan Van Croft, no relation to Laura Croft, <laughs> are in this um, Mexican cafe and they're pretty upset because their plane had to make an emergency landing nearby because of some engine trouble. Um this was going to be their wedding day down in Mexico. Doreen's real upset. Um, but Jan is like, chill the fuck out. <laughs> We're at yeah. this cafe. Let's just have a drink and wait for the repairs to be done. Now, Masterson, who, again, at this point is insane and has escaped from the asylum, wanders into this cafe as well. And he takes a liking to Doreen and joins them at their table and is, like, being, like, weirdly friendly with Doreen.
0: Yeah, weird, creepy.
1: You know the type. Mm -hmm. And wouldn't you know it, Tarantella is in this cafe as well for, like, no explained reason. And she starts doing a sexy dance. Uh, sexy is in quotation marks, because it's not actually sexy. It's like, how would a spider dance sexily? I guess like this. So it's more like an interpretive dance?
0: Yeah, it's it's supposed to be a sexy dance, because, like, everyone in the canteen is reacting to it that way, and it is a sexy babe doing it. It's just... Barely a dance is the thing. Yeah. It's a lot of just movement.
1: With, like, creating fangs with her hands. And, and like, like, really, and like...
0: really like, jabbing the air like she's biting them And, things. like, really, like, angular kicks and things. Yeah.
1: During the dance, the nurse, George, arrives and he's like, Hey, Masterson, ready to come back? You've been escaped for, like, two days. Masterson doesn't reply. Instead, he is looking at... Tarantella dancing. He doesn't recognize her, but somewhere in his mind he's like, that woman is evil, and pulls out a gun and shoots her? And everyone in the cafe is like, what the fuck? And George is like, hey, don't worry, this guy's not right in the head, let me take care of it. Masterson promptly takes George, Doreen, and Jan hostage to go back to their plane.
0: Yeah, he doesn't George doesn't really say don't worry about it. He says, this guy's a crazy killer and will kill any of you if you do anything, so just let him be. And yeah, then they're taken hostage.
1: And it's like, George, you're, you're not handling this well.
0: Yeah. Masterson has, like, a big fixation on Doreen because she's good. Yes. Is the thing that he latches onto, as opposed to Tarantella, who was
1: evil. So they head to the plane where we meet the pilot, Grant, uh, who is the other guy in the the other person in the desert. And Masterson's like, hey, we're gonna take off. Um and Grant is like, No, we're not, the plane engine isn't fixed. And long story short, they take off. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, someone at the cafe clues in and maybe tries to call the cops. And that's when Tarantella gets up off the floor, because she's fine. Remember, she's indestructible. Right,
0: like how a spider is indestructible. Like how if you shot a tarantula, it would be fine.
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Now they're in the plane, flying, and stuff is breaking down, because the engine wasn't fixed. There's also been some sabotage going on, because... I, This character, man. Um... There is a character who is the servant of Vancroft, whose name is
0: Wu. Played by actor Samuel Wu.
1: And he's in the cafe and, like, makes eyes with Tarantella as if they're planning something. Um, And the way he's, like, acting around in the plane makes it clear that he's the saboteur that has put the plane off course um, for them to crash land on top of the Zarpa Misa.
0: Yeah. And Wu is not, I mean, there's so, there's a couple different levels to how he's racist. Like, yes, there's the kind of like,
1: speaks in like Chinese proverbs, right? Like fortune cookies.
0: Yeah. He's a servant, which is like a stereotyped role for like Chinese actors in this period. Yeah. And then there's the fact that he like, can't be trusted. Right. Yeah. So it's like, Yeah, a few different levels of racism going on here. Anyways, they put down at the ZARPA Mesa.
1: Yeah. Now they're trapped, though,
0: because they're on the top of a mountain.
1: And they say it's like 600 feet up in the air, and like, there's no way to get down. Like, they're fucked. They're fucked. Yeah. They only have one flare. Yeah, they're fucked. Further to the point of them being fucked, if you recall, the ZARPA Mesa is where Dr. Aranya lives. Mm -hmm. And his horde of... Babes and dwarves? (laughs) Spider babes and spider dwarves. Yeah. As well as a giant spider. Despite the crash landing, everyone's fine, and George goes off to try to find, like, food or something.
0: Yeah, because they've only got this one bottle of...
1: Brandy. Yeah. George gets attacked by a giant spider. He's off-screen screaming, and the other characters are like, Oh, shit, well, who should go? Who should stay? I don't want to stay here alone. So what they end up doing is like holding hands and walking through the inexplicable jungle that's on top of this Misa, mm-hmm. by the way. Mm-hmm. They find George and he's been attacked and bitten from the back. Think like Shelob in Lord of the Rings. Right, yeah, for sure. Situation. He's <sighs> dead, though. Not like Frodo, who is only mostly dead. <laughs> yeah, no, George is dead, dead. And they're like, oh shit! So they make it their way back to the plane. Throughout all of the sequence, uh, we get shots of the spider women and spider dwarfs, like looking from the bushes and like spying on them. They manage to fall asleep, um, except for Doreen, who gets back up and uh, talks to Grant. And, like, they madly kiss.
0: Yeah, they've basically got the Han and Leia relationship, right? Like, she's kind of a stuck-up bitch, and he's kind of a, like, roguish...
1: He calls her out for being a gold digger, and she's like, but security yeah. is important.
0: Yeah, and he's like, well, I want, like, a genuine lady who's gonna stay by my side when the going gets tough. And then they make out. Yeah. Because it's exactly the Han and Leia thing. Yeah. Um. Even though they've gone to sleep and all of this, like, nobody takes the opportunity at any point to get the gun away from Ugh. Masterson, by the way. he has still been holding them at gunpoint this whole time.
1: Yeah. Which is ridiculous. Anyways, whatever. So, at this point, Doreen looks off screen and screams because she sees um, the spider women and spider dwarfs, and then they, like, scurry into the darkness. And people are like, why did you scream? Like, you woke all of us up. What's going on? And she's like, I saw this. And they're like, oh, you're, that's just your imagination. But then, Bencroft notices that Doreen is missing the fancy hair comb that was uh, an heirloom in his family. We have to go find it. And she's like, fuck that. I'm not going out into the dark. Like, no. So he sends Wu instead. And it's at this point that it's like, I don't think in the process of making this movie, Wu was supposed to be a saboteur. At this point. Yeah. Because he legitimately goes to look for the comb.
0: Yeah, he volunteers. He's like, I'm a good servant. Yeah. Everyone else in the party thinks that Vancroft's an asshole for doing this, but Wu's, like, on board.
1: And so he goes out, and then we see him sneak into um, the lab where Dr. Vanya is, and Dr. Vanya's like, good job, Wu, we have them right where I want them. And Wu's like, well, what are you going to do with them? And he's like, well... I have masters in back, so that's great. I probably have some good use for the lady and the young pilot, and everyone else can be disposed of.
0: And everyone else in that category is just Bancroft at this point.
1: <laughs> and Woo. Yeah. And Wu is like, uh great and tries to like get out of there, but he gets taken by the spider ladies.
0: So this entire series of events, to recap, Tarantella being in the cantina that Masterson happened to go to after he escaped, and then Wu being the longtime servant of Van Croft, whose plane was sabotaged so it would land in the same town as the cantina that Masterson happened to go to after he escaped, meeting up so that Masterson would then take these people hostage at random and then go in their plane that Wu had sabotaged to get Masterson back to Zarpa Mesa. That's why all of this has happened.
1: Meanwhile, they find Wu's body. It appears as if he's been killed by the same spider Mm -hmm. or creature as got George. Um, And he also had found the comb and stuff. So it's clear, like, something didn't quite happen in continuity. Grant confronts VanCroft, like, oh, here's your comb back, asshole. Like, Wu's dead because of you. And everyone's really upset with VanCroft. And he goes, like, walking off like, oh, I am such an asshole, and then he sees in its full gross glory the giant spider, and I looked away at this point because it was very gross, but I guess, like, some PAs, like, push it off the cliff so it, like, quote-unquote jumps at Van Croft.
0: It leaps right at the camera, but it's pretty clear, like, what happened was they picked up the big spider prop and just kind of tossed it at the camera.
1: Yeah. So Vancroft is dead. It's at this point that all of the spider ladies and spider dwarfs that have been watching uh, come out and grab Grant, Masterson, and Doreen and take them down to see Dr. Vanya. And now Grant and Doreen are like, the fuck is going
0: on Yeah, they here? don't have any context for any of this.
1: Dr. Vanya takes Masterson, injects him with something that makes him sane again and And Masterson is like, the fuck, why am I back here? And is like, I brought you back here to give you one last chance. Join me to rule the universe. (laughs) Because if
0: you remember, he wanted Masterson to be his, like, assistant. So he's gone to all this trouble after Masterson went crazy from the sight of these, like, spider people. And then escaped... The Mesa, to get Masterson all the way back and then make Masterson sane again with a convenient, like...
1: Well, I think Masterson went crazy because of the what... The first
0: like, drug? Okay. Yeah. Well, regardless, he's gone to all this trouble to get Masterson back insane again so that he can once again propose to him,
1: be my lab assistant. And it's like, take a hint, dude. You're Right. No means no. Yeah. Um, Masterson says, fuck that, no, and grabs, like, a vial... Fills it with some chemicals and he's like, haha, I have a Molotov bomb cocktail. And urges for Grant and Doreen to get out and blows up the Misa, including Tarantella, Dr. Aranya, and the giant spider.
0: Yeah. His good line there is like, your spiders may be able to regrow a limb, but everything burns. <laughs>
1: <laughs> now we flush. Back to the present. Back to Grant telling the story.
0: Right. So we went into Pepe's thoughts. We came out of Grant's
1: flashback. Yeah. By this point, Doreen has reawoken as well, and no one is believing Grant. But Doreen looks at Pepe and is like, Pepe believes. And then the voiceover comes in again, like, why Why would they believe this fantastic story about strange creatures at the Zarpa Mesa?" Everything's normal up there, isn't it? And uh, as that line is being said, we see one of the spider women creeping over a cliff as if, like, they're still there. To this day. To this day. So that's the end.
0: Okay. So the reason that we watched this movie today is it was recommended to us by listener Nicholas Harold. One of the reasons that he recommended it for us was for this ending where, like, oh, but the monsters are still out there as being, like, a little scarier than, like, your typical 50s movie where, like, everything is neatly tied up and everything's safe again. Sure. Um, but honestly, it doesn't feel like a dangerous, like, oh, the threat still exists, so much as it's just sort of like a, you know, the end question mark. Yeah, Yeah. like, I don't know. The thing, okay, okay. Before we start talking about the various ups and downs of this movie, here's what the reshoots are. Yeah. So here's what Herbert Tevos' original tarantula was. We start in the cantina. That's the first scene of the movie. Masterson is just a homicidal maniac who's escaped from an insane asylum. He has a lot of money, but, like, that's it. You can kind of tell this in two ways. One... In the cantina scene, he introduces himself as Leland Masterson, not Dr. Leland Masterson. Two, the way that Masterson is insane, the way his, like, insanity is written, has nothing to do with, like, weird spider people from the Desert of Death, right? Yeah, it's it's, it's like
1: that naivety weird thing that people like to do for, like, psychopaths or something.
0: Yeah, specifically all of his stuff is biblical related it's yeah. all about like the idea of like good people and evil people and evil people must be punished and good people must be protected. And I'm the one who's going to protect them. And he says like Bible quotes when he kills Tarantella and like, he constantly is quoting the Bible for like other things that he does. Like he's supposed to be like a weird Bible influenced, like his morality is weird and insane guy. Um, Tarantella was just supposed to be a cabaret dancer at the cantina. That's all she is. She's just a murder victim. He shoots her. She's dead. Um, you know, the reason he can tell she's evil is because she's sexy. She's mm. doing sexy dances. Okay. Um, that's it. Uh, Wu was just Vancroft's servant. Uh, Masterson takes the plane hostage. They crash on the ZARPA Mesa. They are then stalked through the night by a big giant tarantula that was created from radiation from the atomic bomb tests. The tarantula kills George. The tarantula kills Wu. When Doreen looks out into the distance and sees the spider people and the spider dwarfs off screen, she's actually seeing the tarantula. All of the scenes where they like wake up and they're like, what did you see? They ask her that in, like, long shot, and then it goes to, like, an extreme close-up with nothing behind her as she says, Oh, the spider people and the spider dwarves. All the scenes of those people watching them in the jungle are separate shots. We never see them in the same place at the same time, unless we're seeing it, like, as an over-the-shoulder reverse shot. Yeah. So no one was watching them. It's just them and the spider. The spider gets Van Croft, kills him, and then it's just Doreen and Grant... And eventually, like, Grant shoots the spider dead. And then they get rescued by the Mexican authorities who saw the flare that Grant shot up in the air when they first crashed. And the love triangle is resolved because VanCroft's dead and Doreen chooses to be with Grant. The end. That's the original movie. Everything to do with Dr. Aranya... And I have to say, I do love that when Grant finally meets Dr. Aranya at the very end of the movie, he goes, Aranya, that's Spanish for spider. <laughs> Great. Thanks, Grant. Um, everything to do with Dr. Aranya, everything to do with the mutated spider people, all of that, that's all added. And like, I could have done with more of that. The, the worst part about this movie is there's not enough crazy To make up for how boring it is. Yeah. And the boring parts are the Herbert Tivo's parts. It's the, like, being trapped on top of the mesa, walking back and forth through the set stuff.
1: Yeah. I can see where he's coming from with trying to create a horror story with that. With, like, the idea of one by one they're being picked off.
0: Yeah, and the dark, creepy jungle and, like, the big spider monster. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Um, the reshoots are much more... I'll say like traditional horror with the mad scientist and the glands.
0: Yeah. Tevos' movie is a monster movie. Orman's movie is a mad scientist movie. Yeah. That's the difference.
1: Yeah. And yeah, kind of to your point of like Tivo's stuff is pretty boring, mm-hmm. especially with the way it's pulled off. The reshoots helped put this more into the horror category. Yeah. Especially with um, having the idea of the people watching Mm -hmm. from the shadows or whatever. Mm -hmm. It reminded me of, like, the snow creature, for example, where, like, it's done terribly, but you have, like, the creature coming out of the shadows and then receding throughout the whole movie to kind of attempt to build up tension.
0: Right. The reshoots are handled fairly well in terms of, like, it's not the most obvious what's original and what's reshoot. If you know what parts of the story are new, you can go, oh, that's a reshoot shot. That is, that is. Um, There's some certain Telltale giveaways, but, like, it's not, it's not, um...
1: It's not night and day.
0: Yeah, it's not night and day. The cinematography in Tivo's stuff has more moving camera and more, like, variety of shots and more, like, interesting shots, and that's the stuff Carl Struss shot. So, like, that's kind of a giveaway a bit. Um, whereas like the Dr. Arania, Ron Orman stuff is more like poverty row, everything in a single mid shot kind of, uh, filmmaking reshoot structure to add Dr. Arania to the story does create this like really weird story structure where our protagonists don't know that the villain exists until the last minute of the movie. And even then like, aren't really sure who he is or what he's doing yeah. and just like, run away at the end um
1: it's it's kind of interesting honestly it reminded me a little bit of like the 34 black cat with a newlywed couple are just like caught up in this like chess game yeah and you have no idea what the fuck is going on yeah and then they just
0: like leave at the end like oh well glad that's behind us yeah um one problem with the fact that like obviously the reshoots had to be done very inexpensively right like yeah i think they did it in a week less than a week for those reshoots it's all on one set like i bet jackie coogan didn't work more than a day on this movie um but it means that the ending is super weak sauce because it's just masterson gets up from the table he's on mixes like two chemicals into a beaker and he's like this is now a bomb that can blow up the entire mesa and i'm like holy shit like Masterson, like, work for the Defense Department, dude. <laughs> and then he just, like, tosses the beaker on the ground and suddenly, boom, and everyone's dead. Like, yeah. it's, it's a pretty weak ending. And it's weak because, like, they didn't have money for an ending. Whereas, Timos' movie, at least we would have seen a fight between Grant and the big spider I and guess. killed the spider. Because, like, the giant spider's the monster of the movie. But, like, in Orman's version, we're focused more on the spider women. Right. So, cause we went from tarantula to Misa of lost women. I don't know. It's, it's a mess, man. It's it a is. mess.
1: Yeah. The score definitely is tiring. Yeah. And definitely like, you know, you hear the idea of like, Oh, flamenco guitar. Okay. Might have some like the same progressions, but whatever. Like we'll see how it goes. It's just someone like strumming the three, the same three chords.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it's it's very repetitive, and then there's a piano.
1: That sounds like it's, like, on a completely different track. Like, they just took two different songs and put them together. Yeah. They do not sound connected at all.
0: Yeah. They don't really have melody. It's just, there's a, like, slamming down on the piano of, like, the dun-dun-dun variety, and then the, like, of, like, the flamenco guitar, and, like, basically they're timed so that, like... One will finish as the other is starting, and like they try to kind of time it with like exciting things maybe happening or on the cuts or something. But like, it's it, bad, it doesn't feel scored to the movie so much as like it really feels like they had the flamenco guitar track, the piano track, and then they just edited them to the soundtrack as they were editing the movie, right?
1: Yeah. They don't match each other, and they don't really match what's going on screen.
0: Yeah. They just kind of serve to try and pretend that there's more exciting going on in the movie than there is, right? Because the music's, like, furiously insisting to you that this is exciting, and it's just them, like, walking on the set, right?
1: So, I didn't enjoy this movie. Mm -hmm. I knew I wouldn't enjoy it because of the spider stuff. Mm, Sure. But I also just didn't really enjoy the movie, period. But at least... You know, it's only, like, an hour and ten minutes, so it's not a huge waste of time. It's still a waste of time, but it's not a huge waste of time.
0: It's not at the level you want it to be to become so bad it's good. Yeah, it's not, like, scared to death. There's a lot of connections between this movie and Ed Wood movies, but it doesn't quite have that unique, like, spark of crazy that you need to get those kind of movies and have them be fun. Yeah. Like the the only real thing that's fun in this movie is playing the spot the reshoots game.
1: Mm-hmm. Like
0: trying to figure out and reverse engineer like where the pieces fit together. But like other than that, like there's just not enough
1: here. We haven't really talked about this, but for the record, the acting's terrible. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Dr. Aranya's pretty good.
0: Yeah, actually, Dr. Aranya was fine. Jackie Coogan's clearly, like, having fun, being a stupid... Like, he knows what kind of movies he's in, yeah. you know? And he's not,
1: like, cheering the scenery, but, you know, he's delivering whatever. He, you know, days work. Yeah. But everything else is terrible.
0: Yeah, I mean, Doreen and Grant are stock characters, and I think the actors playing them are doing a decent enough job of being those stock characters, but the dialogue's awful. And, yeah, it's it's a bad movie.
1: Do you want to move on to vanking?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So I have a spot picked out, Sarah.
1: Oh, okay. I have a range.
0: Okay. Well, what's your range? We'll find out if my spot is inside or outside of it.
1: <laughs> so I first started looking because you were saying how like the studio was very indie and into the exploitation kind of films. Mm. I started my quest At uh, number 143, Sex Maniac. Fair. And looking above Sex Maniac, I felt like this would not go above The Catman of Paris at 139. Catman of Paris has that kind of like bonkers plot, but at least it makes sense and is relatively exciting.
0: Yeah, because they throw in a bunch of horse chases and bar fights. (laughs) (laughs)
1: Looking below Sex Maniac... You know, Scared to Death is below this at 147, Mm -hmm. and, you know, I, I don't know how to compare this to Scared to Death, but below that at 149 is the Monster Walks, which is boring as heck. Yeah. So my range is 149, the Monster Walks, all the way up to 139, the Catman of Paris.
0: Okay. Yeah, my spot is in your range.
1: Oh, dope. Where were you looking?
0: So I looked for Scared to Death first. And I went, yeah, I would much rather watch Scared to Death again for the exact reasons we were just saying. It's got that little bit of spice of crazy that this movie really doesn't have. Um, it's got Bella Lugosi, really. Yeah. Below Scared to Death is Mystery of the Pale Face. And that movie has a lot of problems, but it's got a lot more, like, style and panache <laughs> than this movie does, yeah. right? It's got a guy who takes off a mask to reveal his identical-looking face underneath. (laughs) Below that, as you mentioned, is the Monster Walks, which is terrible and boring and has no twist and is just bad. And I think this is better than the Monster Walks. I agree with you on that. I would much rather watch this than the Monster Walks because this has, like, Dr. Aranya and spider babes and a big puppet spider and, like... Yeah, it's got stuff going on in it. So, I picked 149 as the spot below El Misterio del Rostro Palido and above The Monster Walks.
1: I'm absolutely fine with that ranking. Dope. Easy.
0: All right. Entering the list at the new number 149, it's Mesa of Lost Women, directed by Herbert Tavos and Rond Ormond.
1: If you would like to see this list, you can go to our website, screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. There you can find links to the other films we may have mentioned today, as well as our appeals box. If you feel in your heart of hearts that we have truly disrespected Mesa of Lost Women by ranking this at this particular spot, um, drop us a line through our appeals box, through our ask box on Tumblr. You can email us directly at ScreamScenePodcast at gmail.com or reach out over Twitter at underscore ScreamScene. And we're in a
0: section of time, the 1950s, where like the lines between like horror and sci-fi and thriller are really blurred and hard to distinguish. So if there's any movies that we seem to have skipped that you're wondering like why we didn't cover... It's probably because we thought they were too much like a sci-fi movie or a thriller rather than horror. But if you want to make an argument that like they should be included and we should circle back uh, like Nicholas did for this movie, Mm -hmm. um, send us a line through all the ways that Sarah just said.
1: Yeah. And um, while, like I said, I didn't really enjoy this movie. Thank you to Nicholas Harold for um, pointing it out because You know, the point of this podcast is to make as comprehensive a list as possible. Yeah. And, you know, we appreciate the help in achieving that goal.
0: Yeah. You were (laughs) were just saying, like, people might be upset because we ranked it so low. Frankly speaking, I think we did this movie a favor by ranking it at all. (laughs) (laughs) Scream Scene updates every Wednesday on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, and wherever you listen to your podcasts by subscribing to our RSS feed. You can help support the show by leaving us a rating or a review online, by sharing the show with other people as we head into October. If people want spooky, scary Halloween content to entertain them that is, you know, more safe than the spooky, scary content of the real world outside their window, (laughs) uh, you know, recommend our show as we head into the October Halloween season. Uh, If you have the financial ability to do so, uh, check out our patreon www.patreon.com/reamcene podcast. Uh, patrons of the show help support our hosting fees and the time and effort we put into making the show every week. and at higher donation levels, five dollars or ten dollars a month, uh, they get access to bonus content, cut content from past episodes, um, short stories, essays, music, Audiobooks, bonus episodes. We've done a lot of different kinds of Patreon content, uh, over the years. And, uh, for October's Patreons, currently the vote is in favor of a special bonus episode, similar to the Vera West content that we did. Cool. And I think we're going to do something on HUAC. So that's patreon.com slash scream scene podcast.
1: So, what are we watching next week, Ben? Are we still back in time?
0: No, uh, we're going to go back to the future of 1955. (laughs) Um, for, for, you know, as my apology to you, Sarah, next week's movie is good. Okay. Uh, it's there spiders. No. Okay. Thank you. It's Le Diabolique from 1955, a French horror film, the favorite horror film of Robert Bloch, the author of Psycho, a big hit in the U.S. when it came out. One of the biggest, like, foreign film hits in the U.S. in many years. A really well-known, well-renowned horror film.
1: Okay. I mean, you had me at no spiders, but the rest of this <laughs> sounds pretty dope. All right, well, we will see you next week, Creatures of the Night. Bye. Bye. Bye.